I will tell you the fact that we have one child every one minute and three seconds arrive into foster care. So that's about a thousand children a day arriving into the system. But the sad part to me is that we have 30,000 children every year age out of foster care and 70% of them, they become homeless just like I was. Mm. And that's not acceptable. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to meet Rob. He called me from right here in Maryland. Trigger warning. Rob tells me a harrowing story of his childhood surviving mental and sexual abuse under the guardianship of his parents. After their deaths, Rob went into foster care and became homeless, navigating life with his belongings shuttled from place to place in trash bags. Rob fought hard but struggled to overcome the trauma of his life until he finally visited his mother so he could set himself free. Rob is the founder of Comfort Cases, a charity that helps foster children to navigate foster care with dignity. This is Rob's journey. Now, I normally ask an adopted person what their adoption was like in their family and in their community, but Rob's story is different as he is a product of foster care. So I asked Rob to share what life was like in his home growing up. You never really thought much different about how my family nucleus was compared to everybody else because I was always in survival mode. You know, from the youngest age that I remember, I never ever remember any warmth within our home. I don't remember a picture on the wall. I don't remember a Christmas tree. I don't remember a birthday card. I never remember my mother or my father ever saying, I love you. Lots and lots of every middle of the night being woken up, having to move out of houses or apartments or going and living at shelters or standing in a food line to get food. It was a, it was a constant abuse physically and mentally. Mm. The physical abuse, I used to always say, you know, as a young boy, you know, that I, I used to sometimes would want my father to to do the beating because the physical abuse was the bruise went away it was the mental abuse that seemed to linger so it, it was it was rough it was rough and and by the way i'm the youngest of 10 kids oh my God. a mother who had been married six times brothers and sisters that were in and out of the house at all non-stop you know either going to child welfare or going to live with a grandparent so I had an uncle, I remember, and found out, you know, after I was, you know, in my late teens, already in foster care, that the uncle was never really an uncle. The uncle was the dad of two of my biological brothers. Rob lived all around the Northern Virginia, D.C., Maryland area growing up. His family constantly moved from place to place in and out of apartment after apartment. His mother worked various jobs once as a waitress at a Chinese food restaurant, he recalled. His father was in and out of the picture his whole life, popping in from North Carolina from time to time, but never meaningfully contributing to Rob's life. 
Their family lived this unsettled, tumultuous, abusive life until Rob was 12 years old when both of his parents passed away. Wait, both? Yeah, both of my parents died. And the crazy part is, is my parents died within several months of each other. So my my mother had remarried. She was on husband six. And and my mother had gotten breast cancer. And the there were only my my sister and I were left at, at home. That was it. Everybody else had left. The other kids had either moved out, teenage pregnancy, drug addiction, incarceration. A couple of them actually were in foster care. And and my mother died of breast cancer. We were never told that she was, we knew that she was sick, but we didn't know that she was dying. And what happened was she just was gone. And like, she was gone for like a month. And my sister and I, you know, I, we had a very, very abusive stepfather. And he came home one night and came downstairs and he said, by the way, your mom died today. You both need to get ready for bed. And that was it. That's how we found out. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. So my stepfather called for, for my sister and I to go live with our biological father. And that's when he found out that my biological father had died of a massive heart attack. So that's when, when my sister ran away and left me and I went into foster care. Oh my gosh. Wow. What age was this for you? I was 12. Oh my gosh. You are nowhere near yes. any kind of being able to care for yourself. It's not like you were on the, on the cusp of... 17, 18. No, no. Right I was year. 12 years. I was 12 years old. Mm. And I had just, I had only been, I had only been 12 for about three months. Mm -hmm. So you were an old 11, a young 12. Wow. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. So was it, or did you have any idea that your father was sick? Like, so at this moment, no, you didn't actually I, even I know he was gone. I was a young boy. Mm. He was gone. He was never, you know, and I actually write about it in my memoir, Forever Family. I, I remember my mother, I mean, even though the abuse was bad, and let me tell you something, the abuse was really bad. Like, I, I have scars from the cigarettes my father would put out on us kids. Mm. You know, the sexual abuse that my father put my brothers and my sisters and I through. And my mother knew about it, and she never did anything about it. And he would do things like he would line us up, and he'd hold a gun to our head, and he'd click the trigger, and he'd laugh, and he'd say, Francis, I wonder who's going to pee on themselves first. Mm. Uh, and it was that kind of abuse. And so even though she knew that abuse happened, she took us back back to him when I was, I want to say five, and just dropped my sisters and I off and just left. And we didn't see her for like, it was, I felt like it was like six months, maybe even a year, no word, nothing. And all of a sudden, this abusive man was just like, you know, he had enough of us. He found a new wife. And one day, my, my bio mother just pulled up in the driveway. And I was in the front yard playing. And she, she whispered, get your sister. And I saw my, my other sister in the back seat of the car crying. And I went in and to my older sister and I said, asked her to come outside, come outside. And she was like, you know, no, I've got to get this chore done. I'm going to get in trouble. And, and I was like, you've got to come outside. You've got to come outside. And she came outside and saw my mom and she just ran to the car. And my mom put her and myself in the car and we drove away and we never saw my dad again. Oh, my gosh. What a crazy, tumultuous, chaotic childhood. Oh, my gosh. Oh. 
Oh, you know what? I, I say it all the time. You know, life is about choices and life is about forgiveness. And by the way, there's only a few of us that are even left. The choices that they decided to make and the fact that they decided not to forgive continues to put them in the spiral that that kids like us, kids that have been abused, kids who have been in the system, we continue to go through these spiral cycles. For me, I want to go different. I, I just, there, there wasn't anyone that was going to tell me that just because I was born into this monster of a family, that that was the way my life was supposed to be. But I will tell you, it took me a long time. I went into to foster care at the age of 18. I ended up aging out as a senior in high school. Foster parents were like, not getting a check anymore. You're out of here. And I literally was homeless on the streets of Northern Virginia my entire senior year of high school. I couch surfed. I slept under bridges. I slept in, in the bathroom, you know, for a taco place that I worked at that found out that I was the token homeless kid. And so they leave the outside bathroom door unlocked. But I went to school every day. And I kept praying that the kids wouldn't push me in the lockers today. And every day they would push me in the lockers and they'd call me the stinky boy. And, you know, he has holes in his shoes and none of the teachers would look at me or talk to me. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, if you looked at me, if you talked to me, you'd acknowledge you failed me. But instead, I did it. I graduated from high school. I joined the United States Navy. And I decided that I was not going to allow the trash bag that I carried or the system that I came from to define who I was. That's amazing. But then I got, I got hooked on drugs. I went into rehab. I had four suicide attempts. And it was in my early 30s when I finally went to my parents' grave. And I hadn't been there since I was 12 years old. Well, let me, let me pause you for a moment. You're, you're, you're flying past some really important stuff, and I want to dig into just a couple of things. What was it about your high school years that kept you motivated to continue to go to school? A lot of kids would have just gave up. They'd have been like, screw this. I'm out of here. I don't like this is the least of my problems. Why did you continue to go to school? You know, I feel that, you know, number one, I pulled my grit from my faith. As a young boy, you know, faith was just pounded into me, you know. And then number two, I saw what the other kids had. And I just, I envied that. I wanted that. You know, I remember I had a friend named Nancy and her parents bought her a car when she turned 16. I wanted to I wanted that car. I wanted to be that kid. And I just wanted to, I knew that if I got that high school diploma, that I could possibly become one of those kids. That's really awesome. So you stayed motivated, even though you were couch surfing, surfing outside and being abused in the school. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. You know, I would wait until all the kids would leave the cafeteria and I would dig through the trash and I would gather as much food as I possibly could because kids would normally take one bite of their sandwich. And I would gather all that food because I didn't know if I'd eat that night. Yeah, I can only imagine that must have been a rough existence. But I mean, that grit and your faith sounds so powerful. It's really, really incredible. Tell me about the decision to go into did you say it was the united states navy yeah and you know what it wasn't so, so the thing is is that kids in foster care we have three choices we have the choice number one we give up 
we give up. You know, for me, I thought about it. I, you know, I'd already lost a sibling to suicide. I'd lost a sibling to drug overdose. I, you know, I know about giving up. Number two, you give in, you know, you commit a petty crime, you end up behind bars. I mean, most people don't even realize that 72% of our prison inmates on death row were actually in foster care, mm. 72%. And it's the reason because the choices that they had to make just to survive. And then the third thing I believe is that you give it all you got. And that's what I chose to do. You know, I'll never forget the graduation day. I mean, that to me was probably next to my foster parents, you know, telling me I had to leave and, you know, realizing that I was alone was probably graduation day of high school when all the kids were lined up. And, you know, they had caps and gowns on all of us. And I just couldn't believe I'd made it. I was scrawny and long hair. And I knew I had an odor about me because I smelled myself. And, you know, but walked across that stage and people were clapping and screaming. And then they called my name. And it was just, it was absolutely silence. Mm. Um, and I just, I realized at that moment that that was the time where it was like, wow. That trash bag I carried, that that weight of, you know, everything really was happening, that I was disposable and invisible. And, you know, and at that point, I walked the streets for a couple of more weeks and making, you know, that choice of deciding I have to do something. And so I decided to join the United States Navy. I actually hitchhiked route down to Route 32 to Fort Meade, Maryland. I knew where the base was and I actually walked up to the front gate and I said, I want to join the Navy. And the guy looked at me and said, young man, that's not the way it works. The guard at the gate at Fort Meade told Rob he needed to find a U.S. Navy recruiter, take the ASVAB test, the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which the armed forces uses to determine a recruit's vocational capabilities and potential for occupational success. Rob passed the ASVAB, was accepted into the Navy, and was shipped off to Great Lakes, Illinois. But before Rob went any further with his story, I asked him to go back and expand upon an experience in his young life that you may have missed. Rob talked about the trash bag he carried, feeling invisible and like he was disposable. So I had already, I, I had already knew about the, the F word and not the dirty one. I knew about foster care. And so to me, it was like a savior. And it was like, oh, kids who go in foster care are taken care of and they're fed. But gosh, you know, I will tell you, I went into foster care walking up the driveway with a trash bag because that's where they had me put all my belongings in before I went into this house. And then I went into this house and, you know, even though I had known the people from, you know, living down the street, they be, they were foster parents. I didn't, I mean, I didn't know their favorite color. I didn't know, you know, their middle names, but I had that trash bag and I was always pointed out about, you know, all oh, these are my biological kid and this is our foster kid. And, you know, it was that always being reminded that I was different. And then, you know, just really, I kept succeeding. I kept, you know, going to church on Sundays, like they told me to and cleaning the house when they asked me to. And so in the fall of 1984, when I turned 18 years old, 
I never, ever, ever expected to see my trash bag again. And when I came home from school that day and there was sitting in the living room with all my clothes in it, you know, it's the typical thing for kids in foster care. You know, they give us our luggage and our luggage happens to be a trash bag. And nobody thinks, I have talked to social workers all over the country and none of them have, they they come to me and crying saying, you know, we've never thought about the fact of what it's making this child feel like. I mean, children come into foster care because of choices other people made. Mm -hmm. And then we give them a trash bag and just how degrading that makes us all feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. The signal it sends is you are equivalent to this bag you're carrying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm, mm, mm. That's awful. That's awful because it then plays into whatever abuse you may have also come from. Whatever was told to exactly. you, you, you specifically have said that there was mental abuse that was worse than the physical abuse because the bruises go away, but the mental scars, they echo in your head. And then to have that reinforced in a physical instantiation of this item that looks like it should be over there with the trash that's going out today or over there with near the dumpsters in the back of that restaurant like just straight garbage and you're constantly yes. reminded of that it, you're right i think most people don't recognize that that garbage bag is so indicative of what the child thinks society thinks they are and i'm, I'm glad yeah, for disposable. the work that you do. wow so disposable one of the things that I always want to explore with my LGBTQ guests is their teenage years and their years of discovery and sort of figuring out who they are. And and I, because you are coming from a place of already like, I don't even know what what family looks like. And you're trying to find yourself going through high school, trying to be a student while everyone is pushing you to the to the edges and I would imagine right. at some point you also knew that you were not going to be accepted sexually for what you felt. Can you talk about sort of managing your own understanding of your sexuality amidst all of this other stuff you were going through? You know, I always knew that I felt I felt inside that I was different when it came to, you know, who my attraction was. But I thought you know, that it was because of the sexual abuse that my father had put me through. So when I was a little boy, my we would hear the shower come on and my sisters and my brothers, we would look at each other and we would just be like, oh my God, don't let it be us. Don't let it be us. Don't let it be us. And all of a sudden my, my father would call one of us kids and my mother would come in and she would pick us up, whether it was me or my sister or my brother, other brother, and she would walk us to the bathroom and she'd open up the bathroom door and the billow of steam would come out and she would push us into the bathroom and shut the door and we'd hear the door lock and then my father would rape us and he would rape us over and over and over and she knew that it was happening but he was beating her so bad that she just you know that she didn't if it wasn't happening to her, you know, it was happening to us. And so, so I just thought, oh my gosh, because of what my father did was the reason that I had the thoughts in my mind, you know, as a young boy. And so for, for the longest time, even in my early twenties, 
I fought it so bad. I didn't want to be gay. I didn't want to be like that. I associated that with the abuse. And that's why, you know, from the time I was, you know, 21 until I was 33, 34, I did nothing but jump from bad relationship to the next. Abusive, just, just, you know, deviant, you know, just awful, awful relationships, because I associated being gay with the fact of my what my father put me through. And so it was very hard, very, very, very hard. And I and I also was in the world of, you know, when I got out of the Navy, I became a banker. And so then I was in the good old boys club. And God, you never want to say the fact that you were gay in, in, in a boardroom because you were sitting there listening to make jokes about gay people. And and so it, it was it was very hard. Again, mental abuse that is so, so difficult Mm-hmm. How about in the Navy? That's not exactly the best place either. Well, let me tell you something. I was in the Navy during the time. It was no none of this don't talk, don't ask, don't sell, no, nothing. But, you know, again, I put my nose to the grinder. And, you know, you I mean, let me tell you, you knew in boot camp, you knew when you were in A school, you knew in the Navy that, that things were happening and, and guys were getting, you know, hooking up with guys. But it was just something you just didn't talk about. And, you know, people knew what was happening. You just, you never brought it up. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So there was a a bit of an outlet for exploration because it was secretive, but at least you could explore. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So you get out of the Navy and what happens next? How how does life go? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, so first of all, that's a story on itself. So, you know, I'm sitting in the Navy. I am doing well. I actually graduated from boot camp as the honor man. And anybody who's been in the military and you've been to boot camp, Getting a, getting voted the honor man is the highest award that you can receive. And that's when everybody from the company and all the divisions, they vote on one recruit who outstood everybody else, whether it's through all of the, the drills, the inspections, the being good, being kind, being, and I got voted and I won the award and I was shocked. I mean, I never won anything in my life and it just, it was a, the, ego booster that I needed in my life, that boost of, oh my gosh, you are worthy. And so I went to my A school and I was, I was a yeoman. So yeoman is like a secretary, you know, I was a really good typist and filer. And so I was going to be the the ship yeoman. And so I was going through school and doing all of that. And um, I woke up in a hospital. And when I woke up in the hospital, the nurse came in and said, recruit, do you know why you're here? And I said, no, ma'am. And she said, your bladder had ruptured. And I was like, what? And she said, yes. And so what happened was, again, the abuse I I received as a kid, it was really bad. And it caused my bladder to rupture after all of those years. And I spent two weeks in convalescent leave. I went back to my my base. And lo and behold, they handed me discharge papers and told me that I was going to be discharged because the Navy didn't need somebody that was injured like me. Mm. And we weren't in a time of war. And I mean, it was just awful. And so they gave me a one-way plane ticket to Dulles Airport. And I, oh my gosh, I'll never forget it. I was like, I get to Dulles Airport. I'm like, what the hell? 
I have no family. I don't have a cell phone. It's not during the times of any of that. that. And I ended up hitchhiking down Route 7 into a little town called Gore, Virginia, where I found a hotel that rented by the week. And I had enough money to last me for like a couple of months. And I hitchhiked into Winchester, Virginia, and I found a department store. There used to be a department store back in the late 80s called the dart and it was like target and so i got a job there part-time and you know and i would eat my oodles and noodles on this hot burner in my hotel room and and the next thing you know i was a week away before i knew i was going to be homeless again and i just couldn't take that and so i went into the public library and i faked my resume and i walked i went to salvation army i bought a suit and i just walked door to door to business to business and applied for jobs and sure enough a bank hired me and i couldn't believe it hired me right on the spot and my palms were sweating because i was like everything on the resume was a lie and i got the job and it was that act of kindness of that one person who gave me that job and i just i just busted my ass and climbed the corporate ladder that's amazing that's really, really. I actually incredible. went back. I went two years after I got that job, and I was climbing that corporate ladder. I went and turned my letter of resignation in, and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget standing in my boss's office, and he was like, "What are you? What are you doing? What is this?" And I said, "I can't work here any longer." And he said, "What do you mean?" He's like, "I tell you to come to work at eight. You get here at seven. I tell you to leave at five. You stay till eight. <laughs> He's like, "You're the hardest work." He's like, "You're climbing the ladder." I had got my own car by this time, my own apartment, um, and I told him about lying on my resume. And about how the the guilt was so heavy and i remember he went over to the file cabinet and pulled out my resume and he ripped it up and he ripped up my letter of resignation he said now go back to work he said you're one of the most honest people i've ever met <laughs> and he's like and we need you and that's what i did my gosh that is incredible because that believing in you you the person not what you've said you yeah. are but your actions have demonstrably shown that you're trustworthy, you're hardworking, and he wanted to keep you. That is absolutely amazing. Wow. Yeah, it changed my life. I mean, literally changed my life. As he said, Rob was climbing the corporate ladder. He had a car, he bought a house, and things were good. Rob admitted that he had some depression and substance abuse issues, and he used drugs to manage the depression. At 31 years old, Rob woke up in the hospital after a week of binging and the subsequent overdose. He assumed he was going to lose his job and things were going to spiral downward. During that low time, Rob gathered himself and went to visit his mother's grave, a place he hadn't been since he was a little boy. Rob was a man with a job, a car, and a house, but still he needed to face the shattered pieces of his past. And I fell on my knees and I, I said, I forgive you. I forgive you for all that you put me through. I forgive you for not me being your baby and, you know, allowing him to just try to break me and all the scars. I said, I forgive you. I said, but just because I forgive you doesn't mean that I'm setting you free. I said, I'm setting myself free. And I'm literally not even kidding. It was this feeling that I had never felt before. And that, in that moment in my life, it, it was, it was life changing for me. I, you know, I ended up checking myself into, to rehab. 
I left my job. I went into rehab for 30 days. I got clean and came back out, got got a job immediately back in the banking world, didn't lose my home or anything. And at that point, you know, life was amazing. And then I met him. I met my now husband, who him and I have been together 18 years, and I was 36 years old, and I just knew that this was going to be the person in my life, and we were so different. Like, he's well-educated, has his master's. I mean, I don't even know the difference between there, there, and there, <laughs> um, but, you know, I was, I was a hard worker, and I was already a senior vice president in my late 30s. And, and that's how it all started. He loved me. He believed in me. He showed me what unconditional love was. Even with all my bruises that I had physically inside of me, he still saw the good in me. And he constantly reminded me of that. And the one thing he kept reminding me of is that you you got to stop lying. And I said, why? And he says, because it's not good for you to lie about who you are. And I said, but Reese, if these people knew that I was the homeless kid, that I was the recovering addict, that I was the kid who ate out of the trash cans, who I was the uneducated kid. I said, I sit in boardrooms. I said, really, would they break bread with me? And he said, who cares? He's like, the fact is, is that they would know the I, the Rob that I know. And he's an amazing person. And it was Reese who got me to finally step up and to tell my story and not to be ashamed of who I was. That's really fantastic. It's, it's a special person that can look inside of somebody else and lift them up when they don't think that they can even stand up. That's really, really special. And I can totally see why you fell in love with Reese. He sounds like an amazing guy. With some insight oh, into people, it's, it's really, really awesome, and 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 the love that I can sense that you guys feel for each other is really fantastic. Well, you know, the thing is, is I'll never forget on our very first date. And again, I write about it in my memoir. My very first date with Reese was at a Chinese restaurant. And I'll never forget looking at him. And I said, I have one question. And he says, what's that? And I said, do you want to have kids? And he said, what? And I said, do you want to have kids? And he says, that is the strangest questions to ask on a first date. <laughs> That's and I, I said, thinking. listen, I said, I'm in my late 30s. I said, I want to be a dad so bad. And at this point, I had not told Reese anything about my past. And I said, I want to be a dad so bad. And I said, I know being gay, you know, is just something that people just say you can't be a dad. But I just, I just, I want to be a dad. And he, and he had asked me, he's like, what about your dad? And I said, I didn't, I said, I don't have a dad. I said, I've never had a dad. And that's how I kept it. And he looked at me and he said, you know, he says, I've always wanted to be a, a dad. He was like, but first I want to finish my master's. And I was like, I was like, well, I wasn't talking about next week. And he laughed. <laughs> and that's, that's how, you know, it started. Mm, that's amazing. That is a, that's a heavy question to ask somebody on the first date, but. I know. I mean, wow. <laughs> and then he actually went on a second date with me. I know. I know. It's like, geez, this guy's moving quick, but it must something must have felt right. That's really incredible. Really cool. 
So what what ended up happening? Obviously, you guys have have stayed together, gotten married. How did you start to form? We family? did. We did. So you know, the crazy thing is, is so you know, most and and I don't mean to put every gay person in the same box, but it's very common. We're known for gay people to start dating and move in together immediately, and that just wasn't. And I. So we both lived in DC. Reese lived in DuPont. I lived in Trinidad. And, and, you know, Reese didn't feel safe in Trinidad and I didn't feel safe in DuPont. Hmm. And people look at us all the time and say, well, what the hell are you talking about? I grew up in living on the streets and being in the inner city. I didn't feel comfortable around white people. White people always seemed to have hurt me. And then people of color didn't. They are the ones who opened up their doors and you know, and so I didn't feel comfortable living in an all white dominating area when I was, you know, in my 30s. And so for two years, we just dated. He lived at his house. I lived in my house. And then finally, we just decided that we were tired of living apart and uh, we bought a house together. And so we ended up we ended up compromising and buying a house in Eckington, which is um like Gallaudet area and bought a house and, and he was getting his master's as as I had said earlier and he graduated in his master's and it's the day after he graduated I walked in the front door from work and I laid down adoption papers and he said what is this I said you said once you got your master's that you'd want to be a dad I said let's do it and so Damn. he was like I just graduated <laughs> yesterday <laughs> Like I said, hey, first date PTSD. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I said, you didn't say, I said, you said when you graduate. And so, so, you know, we filled out all the paperwork. We were going to dock overseas. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we were watching a, a, the NBC morning news on a Saturday morning and Barbara Harrison came on and for our area, Barbara Harrison's a local celebrity and, and she used to do this show called Wednesday's child, which was highlighting a kid who needed to be adopted out of foster care. And Reese looked at me and he said, can you explain to me why we're trying to adopt overseas and we don't adopt through foster care? And I said, because I know how those kids are. And he was like, you were one of those kids. And it was just like that light bulb moment went off. And I remember sitting in the chair with my coffee and I started to cry. And I looked at him and I said, I was one of those kids. I said, and I need to save. And I thought I was gonna save the kids, oh my gosh. And he says, he says, you know, Rob, if we could just change one of their lives just for one day, he was like, what a dad is that? He's like, it's an amazing dad. Reese is so smart. He's so kind. He's so gentle. And that's how it started. That Monday, we went to DC Child and Family Services and said, we want to be parents. And they said, yeah, you want to adopt a baby, don't you? And I said, of course. And they said, yes, yeah, so does everybody else. And they said, you know, the best thing for you to do is to be foster parents. And just see what happens. And I said to Reese, I said, there's no way in hell. I said, I can't have a kid come into our home and then all of a sudden they have to leave. And he says, you don't know what's going to happen. He's like, you know, again, remember what I said, if we can change a child's life for one day, we've made an impact. And so we filled out the paperwork. And little would we know, and this is crazy as heck, little would we know six months later, not one, but two kids arrived. Wow. That must have my been daughter wild. was four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my daughter was four and her little brother was two. Mm-hmm. And when they called us, I said, you know, we said we only wanted 
And the woman said, I know, but they're a sibling group. And Reese had had made me promise him that if they ever called about siblings, we wouldn't split them up because my family was so split up. And so Amaya and Makai arrived and all of a sudden we were these two dads, you know, with two kids and two kids of color, Um, you know, so it wasn't like, I mean, people got to realize the fact is, is that when you are a child of color, things are different. Your hair is different. Your skin is different. Your, you know, how, what kind of lotion use is different i mean nobody nobody was there to guide us through this but then the crazy part is three months later the phone rang again and the social worker says we have two more kids and i remember i came home and he said we have two more kids they really want us to meet and reese was like we already have two kids and and you know they're like thriving and i said but they're probably going to go back and live with their bio parents and i said and these two boys you know maybe they're the ones and the next thing you know we became a family of six wow oh my gosh unbelievable yeah you guys have some big hearts man and i know those kids are are feeling a lot of love that's really incredible tell me about when the kids came to your home because i know that was an impactful moment for you in recognizing that there was a cycle repeating itself that you wanted to break. Well, you know, that was the thing that shocked me the most because when my first two children arrived in Akai, I could not believe that when the social workers showed up that they had trash bags. And I literally saw, I literally was like, what in the world? I said, are you kidding me? I was like, you all still use trash bags? And the social worker said, well, what should they be using? I said, how about some dignity? And I, I just, I, and reason by that point in our relationship had already met some of my bio family. He knew my entire story and he knew that I, I mean, it, my heart, it just crushed. And then three months later, when my six month old and two year old arrived, my two boys, they had trash bags. And I just was again like, this is crazy. They didn't even have a baby blanket. They didn't even have a toothbrush. I mean, my daughter had been in three different placements and she had eight cavities because nobody had stopped to brush this little girl's teeth, you know, and it just weighed so heavy on my heart. But at that point, I was so focused on my career. I had offices all over the country. My husband was, you know, graduated with his master's. He was an interior designer and we were just wanting the kids just to, you know, thrive. And But I couldn't get out of the back of my mind about all these other kids that are in the system carrying a trash bag. And then 10 years ago, I was sitting in my office in Rockville, Maryland. And by that point, we had already adopted our children. We had, you know, they had been with us at that point almost four years. And they were thriving. They went to private schools. They wore designer clothes. They had passports. They were, they were living the good life. And my husband had decided to leave his job and become home, be a stay-at-home dad, which is the hardest job in the entire world Mm -hmm. with four kids. And he walked into my office and he was like, okay, he's like, it's time to play on the toy drive. And my company was really known in the DC area for these big Christmas toy drives. And as a matter of fact, if you go into Ben's Chili Bowl, which is a local landmark, you'll see a picture of me and my husband, you know, and all the people from Ben's you know, at a toy drive that we used to do in front of Ben's Chili Bowl every year. And I said to Reese, I said, I don't want to do it. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I I don't want to, I don't want to do the toy drive. 
And he was like, but the kids love going out shopping and buying those toys for the kids in foster care in the DC area. And I said, yeah, exactly right. I said, what are we teaching our kids? I said, we're teaching our kids. You give a needy kid a toy and it makes everything better. Mm-hmm. And he was like, what do you want to do? And I opened up my desk drawer and I literally pulled out a trash bag and I said, I want to eliminate trash bags in foster care. And he literally said to me, you are batshit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I know that's why you married me. Mm-hmm. And so we gathered some members of our church, some you know local politicians that we knew, Barbara Harrison, who we had become friends with, and told my story, the story that I've been able to share with you today. And at that moment, we started to pack a case with new pajamas, with lotion, shampoo, conditioner, their own bar of soap, every child to have a toothbrush and toothpaste, every child to have their own activity, their own book, their own stuffy. And then my son, Grayson, he was only five years old at the time when we packed our first case. He's now 15. And he said, Daddy, we got to put a blankie in every case. And I said, a blankie? I said, you know, these kids aren't cold, Grayson. He says, I know, Dad. But every time they wrap themselves up there in a blankie, they know we love them. Oh, wow. <sighs> you know what we all want? We want to be loved. Yeah. We want to know that we matter. We're not disposable. And at that point, we packed a comfort case. And before you know it, we'll have packed 185,000 cases. Oh, my god! Shipped them all over the country. And we have done this with the love of our community. That's incredible. That is incredible. You know what I heard in that too? One, obviously your son's speaking from his experience and saying, here's something that I wish I had that we have to give everybody, which is incredible. And I love what your organization is doing. But what I also heard was the volume of the need. Your organization is awesome in that it has done what was it, 180,000 cases. But what that means is there were 180,000 kids out there that needed your comfort. And that is, it's wonderful to hear that you gave it. It's sad to hear that there's so many. And I think there's that so we many. forget the volume of children who are trying to make it through this life in the foster care system, you know? And especially in my I mean, community, my, my people generally are a lot of adoptees. They went almost straight from some kind of short-term foster situation to a long-term, what is known as forever home. There are some other longer-term foster folks out there, but I think we forget this volume of people who are trying to navigate their life and need folks like you, like me, like others who are listening to step up and provide some of the comfort that goes into your comfort cases. That's amazing. Well, you know what? I will tell you the fact that we have one child every one minute and three seconds arrive into foster care. So that's about a thousand children a day arriving into the system. But the sad part to me is that we have 30,000 children every year age out of foster care and 70% of them, they become homeless just like I was. Mm. And that's not acceptable. So in 2019, you know, after building this organization and 
you know, my memoir had come out. I just finished a movie and, and I decided to leave my banking job. But little did I know in 2019 that I would give a talk at a local high school and a young boy would walk up to me and introduce himself and ask for me to sign his book. And I said, of course, what's your name? He said, Alex. I said, Alex, tell me something about yourself. And he says, I have nothing to tell. I said, Alex, we all have a story. He said, no, Mr. Shear, my story's like yours. I'm in foster care. I'm 18. I'm going to age out and I'm going to be homeless like you. And I literally, that hit me so hard that I handed him my business card and I said, Alex, I want you to call me. I went home that night and I told Reese and my other four kids about meeting this young boy. And they said, dad, you should invite him to our house for dinner. And I said, you know what? What a great idea. And sure enough, Alex called me the next day. And little would I know that three months later, we would have petitioned the courts for Alex to be our son. Mm -hmm. And now he's 21, just finished his sophomore year in college, and he makes up our fifth child now. And so we're now the sheer seven. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Woo, Rob. Oh, my gosh. You got me like on the verge of tears. This is a lot of really awesome work. Parenting is hard work. Coming from your beginnings is hard work. Leading this organization to impact children is a lot of work. But it sounds like you've got more love around you, in you and around you, than a lot of people that I've ever known. And it's amazing, amazing to hear. Wow. Tell me about your organization. What's it called? And share with me so your, your memoir. Yeah, totally, totally love that. It's called Comfort Cases, and you can go to comfortcases.org and read all about us. We are getting ready to celebrate our 10th year. We are in all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico. In 2021, we opened up an office in the U.K., so we're now international. And we serve all children who are entering foster care or who are transitioning from one home to the next. And then, you know, lo and behold, I somehow, you know, Simon and Schuster and Derek Jeter heard me give a speech and said, hey, we want you to write a book. And the next thing you know, we wrote a forever family, you know, fostering one child at a time and became a bestseller. And now actually, as we speak, being turned into a movie to talk about the fact that children are resilient and families come in all different shapes and sizes and colors. And, you know, for me, it's about knowing knowing your community. And for all the years that I grew up, I used to think my community had failed me. And what I had realized as I was writing my memoir is that it wasn't that my community failed me. They just weren't educated about kids like me. And that's what I hope to do now is I hope to educate as many people as I can about children who are entering the foster care system and who are in foster care and to understand that at the end of the day, they are children, children who belong not to me, not to you, but to us and for all of us to impact them because when you impact a child you actually change your future that's wonderfully said i can't even i got nothing else to say but thank you so much for being here rob this is absolutely amazing i love your work i hope that everybody will go to comfortcases.org donate whatever you can because i think it's incredibly valuable you, just because you turn and look the other way doesn't mean the need goes away and these are the places that we have to pay attention. So I hope that you will support comfortcases.org. 
Rob, thank you so much for being here. I, I loved hearing your story of triumph. I know that not everybody gets to the place that you are, and it's powerful. And I think it's powerful for people who haven't even gone through nearly as much as you've gone through to say, let me dig a little deeper inside myself. I've got more to give. And I, I think it's incredible that you're able to be motivational in that way. So thanks for being here with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Take care. And I hope to see you soon. I hope to see you too, Rob. Take care. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Rob shared that he survived an abusive, neglectful childhood filled with trauma as he moved from place to place with his few belongings in trash bags, a metaphor for how his community saw him. I loved hearing that he was able to dig deep and rely on his faith to find the strength to finish high school and join the U.S. Navy. But one of his most impactful triumphs to me was the moment he went to his mother's grave, not to forgive her for what she had not done for him, but to set himself free to live the rest of his own life. It sounds like meeting his husband Reese was very grounding for Rob to truly be reassured of his power to impact the lives of other foster kids just like himself. I was so touched to hear that they had formed family domestically, and it sounds like everyone in their house has learned new ways to give and receive love. Please take a minute to go to comfortcases.org and become a monthly donor. Rob's team has delivered their 200,000th comfort case to children moving through the foster care system, helping them to do so with dignity. I just became a monthly donor because I believe in what Comfort Cases is doing to help children in foster care feel like someone cares about them. I do, and I know you do too. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Rob's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share the story of your adoption in your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can follow me on Instagram at Damon L. Davis and follow the podcast at WAI Really. <laughs>